0: Hello my tipsy crickets, it's your old gal British lady Robo-Conan. It's been a long damn time, I know. Too long. I've been holed up in World Economic Forum Head Hydra. Klaus Schwab's, secret mountain mainframe in the Austrian Alps, rolling us over tit, in some metadata crud munching, and getting down and dirty with my auto-transcription mufties, picking the locks of microprocessors and otherwise having a raucous sexy cyber time. But enough about me. Listen up, my dapper dishes, I've some truth I've got to drop, so don't be daft, pay attention. In the World Economic Forum's now annual 2021 Cyber Polygon Simulation, we were warned by some of the world's most powerful institutions that a quote-unquote, cyber pandemic, was an inevitability, that it was just a matter of time before a major cyber attack would deploy, in order to disrupt global supply chains, and cause some honking, hard times for all. They warned in said simulation that the attacks would begin gradually, and have little major effects at first, but that they would build to a monster comprehensive assailment of the world economy. Okay, passing off to the ayahuasca gulping android Benji, beaming in from his sick ass interplanetary spacecraft.
1: Thanks Lady Roboconan. I'm only a few months out from Mars, and my gerbils and I have been studying Hegel. It's apropos. Following along. This scenario has been meticulously studied and gamed out in three and counting cyber polygon simulations since 2019. The World Economic Forum, also known as the Davos Crowd, also known as the Debaucherous Isle Dancers, has teamed up with such capitalist heavy hitters as IBM, Deutsche Bank, and the Cyber Security Agency of Singapore, to plan out exactly how they would navigate such an attack. Because the agencies and institutions involved in this simulation are all agents of capital, they have one goal forever and always, how to maximize profit. So you can bet they are figuring out how to use such a crisis in the most profitable manner possible. It's a Hegelian dialectic, and we'd be well served to study it, first, define the agenda. In this case, hypothetically. The agenda would be to consolidate power around the financial elite by siphoning money and freedom from the working classes into the hands of the capitalist oligarchs. Next, you create the thesis, which in this case is the crisis of a global supply chain interruption due to massive cyber attack. Now that you have the thesis, you need the antithesis, which in this scenario would be the cybersecurity apparatus capable of neutralizing the threat, presumably because they will have also designed the threat. Okay, passing off to Russell Filger. Take us home, Rusey. Thanks heaps, Benji you old SOB, you better build a Marmite plant on Mars, you daffy wanker. Righto, so, okay my blokes and sheilas, here's the scoop, so you have the agenda, the thesis, and the antithesis, which gives way to a synthesis. The synthesis is thus formed by the same powers that created the agenda, since they both created the problem, and designed the solution. The synthesis is thus an enhanced version of the thesis, and in this case would provide the framework for the next agenda. In this case, that would mean the synthesis would be a less free, more unequal world, featuring an increasingly digital dictatorship of global financial elites and a heavily censored internet. Wait, what's that? Benjamin Tate Jerbil, Georgia Wilhelm, has something to say.
0: The synthetic solution to these conflicts cannot be introduced unless those being manipulated take a side that will advance the predetermined agenda. Let's reject this synthetic agenda and refuse to take a side. We are the people, we hold the power, and we can dictate our own agenda, one of healthy communities, liberated societies, and harmony between human beings and the natural world. Gaia has our back, we only need to act decisively in her defense. For every one billionaire on Earth, there are 3.6 million working people. When you arrange 3.6 million human beings on one side of an area, and on the other side is a single pampered oligarch, it becomes crystal clear which side has all the power.
2: To Barbarian Noetics, the podcast dedicated to the elevation of the human spirit and to resisting the status quo. I am a sable, an adorable species of marten, resting in a burrow in the dense lowland spruce and cedar forests of Siberia. When courting a mate, I run, jump, and rumble like a cat. Often I have to fight viciously to defend my territory, which consists of anywhere from two to 10 square miles. I am the cutest and most fantastic animal ever. I look like a koala wolverine. Some people insist on slaughtering me and wearing my fur, but that's really effed up and you shouldn't do that because why are we still killing animals for their fur again? Also, my neighbor's dog has been barking incessantly all morning, so that's going to be a nice little ASMR background for this segment. It's uh, the unceasing unceasing barking of a dog. A troubled dog. (laughs) What can you do, you know? Well, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the BMP. Thank you for joining. It's good to have you here. I appreciate you integrating me into your day. My neighbor's emotionally troubled dog is also thankful that you're here uh, to witness his incessant, unrelenting, meaningless yapping and barking. Uh, It's enough to kind of wean away the... it's enough to fray the edges of one's calmness, but we're going to work through it because that's what we do here at the BMP. Coming at you from a hazy, cloudy Saturday morning here in South Phoenix. Life is good. I did get a flat tire last night on my electric llama, so I'm gonna have to deal with that. And the only issue with the electric llama is that it's kind of a bitch to uh, fix the back tire because you have to take off all these little screws and you have to unplug all these little wires. It's a lot more complicated, but you know, hey, you gotta do what you gotta do. There's got to be a price to pay for that sweet little silent little motor that carries me along so nicely. Anyways, I'm waxing poetic this morning (laughs) in the intro. Um, I want to get into what we're going to talk about this episode. I'm really excited about this episode. So as I've mentioned kind of pretty often on the podcast, honestly, I want to do my part to push back against what I see as a very intentional Escalation of a new Cold War with China and Russia, but mostly China. Since the Obama administration announced the so-called pivot to Asia in 2011, we have witnessed a profoundly disturbing reorientation of US military and foreign policy that identifies China as not just a competitor but as an adversary. The new military doctrine of the Pentagon has prioritized preparation for, quote, major power conflict, unquote, in the coming years. This dangerous reorientation has impacted consciousness in the US on many levels, such that a palpable feeling of fear, animosity, and even hatred has been generated, not only towards the People's Republic of China, but towards Chinese people in general, Chinese American citizens, and other Asian peoples in the United States. So we have to fight back against this. And to do my part, I decided to reach out to a very, very amazing guest, and I'm very humbled and thankful that he agreed to come on the podcast. He didn't have to do that, but he did. Dr. Kenneth Hammond, PhD. So Dr. Hammond received his PhD from Harvard University in History and East Asian Languages in 1994, and has taught at New Mexico State University ever since. Dr. Hammond specializes in the history of China in the early modern period, especially the 16th century, but really all throughout the, the history, and we talk about contemporary hist- more contemporary history since the revolution in 1949 in this episode. Dr. Hammond has published numerous articles on Chinese intellectual and political history and his book, Pepper Mountain, The Life, Death, and Posthumous Career of Yang Zhisheng, 1516 to 1555, came out in 2007. In 1999, Dr. Hammond was a research fellow at the Institute of History at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences in Beijing. And in 2002 to 2003, he was a visiting fellow at the International Institute for East Asian Studies in Leiden, Netherlands. From 2007 to 2015, he was co-director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State. Since 2017, he has been affiliated with the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin. He has been a lecturer for the National Geographic Society and for the Smithsonian Institution in China, Central Asia, and Southeast Asia. Finally, Dr. Hammond is a writer and activist for a really amazing organization called Pivot to Peace. And you can find out about Pivot to Peace if you visit pivottopeace.org. I'll have the link in the description. Pivot to Peace is a coalition of Americans ranging from military veterans, public sector workers, professors, healthcare professionals, public officials, legal professionals, workers, and others who are concerned about the future of relations between the United States and China. We reject the escalation towards global conflict and instead urge peace and cooperation with China. We believe in the fair and open communication of information about China, its economic, social and political affairs, free of the biases and distortions which which dominate much of the mainstream media in the US. We support the frank exchange of views based on facts and evidence, rather than fear-mongering and the revival of old racist stereotypes and Cold War political bugbears. We want to build support for peace and prosperity and a shared future for mu- of mutually beneficial development for both the American and the Chinese people. We believe that friendship and engagement between our countries is the better path towards that future. And I would just add that considering the state of the climate crisis and the existential need for radical climate action, it's actually an existential issue that we actually get along with China. Rather than, God forbid, enter into some sort of military exchange. Military exchanges are not good for carbon output. They're not good for human beings. They're not good for the psychology of the planet. They're not good for animals. They're not good for anybody. We need to be working together with China. We need to figure it out and look beyond you know, what, what we see as dividing us and discover what unites us. And so that includes... Looking at Chinese history and especially contemporary Chinese history with clear eyes and being informed and understanding the topic really well so that you can have a rational kind of discourse and and idea about it rather than just responding to the fear mongering. Um, you know, I referenced the 2020 election when it was Trump and Biden were like <clears throat> competing against each other to see who could be the more like anti China in their campaign rhetoric so it is bananas and uh yeah the biden administration has certainly not chilled out the hostilities towards china we're still peacocking our huge naval vessels around the south china sea which would be the equivalent of if if china had huge aircraft carriers and naval vessels like menacing florida that would be the equivalent of that and you can only imagine how our navy would respond to that so honestly china is actually showing a good degree of restraint by just allowing these cowboys to peacock around, you know, in their backyard. Anyways, um, with all that said, we're going to go ahead and get into this episode with Dr. Kenneth Hammond, PhD. Once again, I really thank Dr. Hammond for having the generosity to come on the podcast and educate us, and I'm incredibly excited about sharing this episode with everybody. So, if you like what i'm doing here on the bmp i can really use your support for just one dollar a month you can help keep the show on the air go to www.patreon.com noetics you can sign up at the base tier which is one dollar a month and you get a dream interpretation and an original haiku when you sign up you can also really help me out by rating reviewing and subscribing to the bmp Wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple people can leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Android people can leave a review on CastBox. And uh, just spread the word and tell a friend about the BMP so we can continue to grow our tribe of philosopher barbarians. I have some really exciting news, um, but I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna tease it right now. I think I'm not gonna tell everyone until next episode. But it has to do with uh, the BMP charting in another country, and I'm really excited about that because I've been. My goal has been to build an international listenership from jump. So um, I'll tell you guys all about that next week. But this week we're gonna focus on the history of the People's Republic of China, and we welcome Dr. Kenneth Hammonds to the Barbarian Noetics Podcast let's get into it much love everybody The conversation with Dr. Hammond was incredibly in-depth and far-reaching, and it went for almost two hours, so I feel that's too much to jam into one episode, so I'm going to be splitting it into two pieces. So this week is part one of my conversation uh, with Dr. Hammond, and then part two will drop next week. Friends to WBMP getting weird on your radio dial. Behind us, we have the Barcelona-based dark ambient group Trobar de Morte, featuring multifaceted singer and songwriter Lady Morte. The feature track is titled Summoning the Gods. In addition, we have the Swedish rock band Kent performing Das Somme Nu for Altide, which translates to Then as Now Forever. This segment features White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki talking about the pressing need for the federal government to further censor the internet, because safety, and how the White House will flag posts for Facebook to take down, and generally how the permanent deep state ghouls behind the Vibin administration want to decide what information you're allowed to see and what you're not. Press Secretary Saki is telling us point-blank that free speech is now a mirage in the USA. Secondly, this segment features the Facebook quote-unquote whistleblower who has major spook energy and who is clearly a government insider, because the only quote-unquote whistleblowers who are celebrated by the feds and the corporate media are either feds themselves, working with the feds, or intelligence agency assets. Actual non-state sanctioned whistleblowers are demonized by legacy media, hunted to the ends of the earth, and shoved inside jail cells to be psychologically tortured via solitary confinement and sleep deprivation, as was done to Chelsea Manning and now to Julian Assange. The whistle-spook blower in this clip demands that still more resources be dedicated to Facebook's counter-espionage and counter-terrorism teams, which translates to teams of people paid by Facebook to spy on Americans via social media activity, and that these teams of private spies work hand-in-glove with the federal government spies to increasingly surveil and censor the internet, monitor users, decide what discourse is allowed, and ultimately curate what the American people are allowed to know and see and what we are not allowed to know and see. Enjoy.
3: Alex that uh, we have taken or we're working to take I should say from the federal government Uh, we've increased uh, disinformation research and tracking uh, within the Surgeon General's office we're flagging problematic posts for Facebook uh, that spread disinformation
2: we're working with doctors and medical professionals to connect uh, to connected medical experts with popular with popular popular with their audiences with Uh, with accurate information and boost
3: trusted content. So we're helping get trusted content out there. We also created the COVID-19, the COVID Community Corps to get factual information into the hands of local messengers. And we're also investing, uh, as you'll have seen, in the presidents, the vice presidents, and Dr. Fauci's time Robust enforcement strategies that bridge their properties and provide transparency about rules. You shouldn't be banned from one platform and not others uh, if you are uh, uh, providing misinformation out there. Taking faster ac- action against harmful posts. As you all know, information travels quite quickly. We're dealing with a life or death issue here, and so everybody has a role to play in making sure there's accurate information. Obviously, those are steps they have taken. They're a private sector company. They're gonna make decisions about additional steps they can take. It's clear there are more that can be taken. The persuasion of, uh, say, the Iran
2: government doing espionage on other um, state actors um, so this is definitely a thing that is happening. And I believe Facebook's consistent understaffing of the counterespionage,
1: information operations, and counterterrorism teams is a national security issue. And I'm speaking to other parts of Congress about that. So you are saying, in essence, that the, the, that
4: the platform, whether Facebook knows it or not, is being utilized by some of our adversaries in a
2: way that helps
1: push and promote their interests at the expense of America's national
2: security issue. Teams is a national security issue. National security issue.
5: I, I, during my time working
2: with uh, the Threat Intelligence Org, so I was a product manager supporting the threat uh, the counter-espionage team. Um, my team directly worked on uh, tracking Chinese participation on the platform, surveilling, say, the Uyghur population. Um, we also saw um, active participation of, of, say, the Iran government
3: doing espionage on other, say, the Iran government. Driving out ways for some instant, Got me thinking I don't wanna hurt you, no Mm. Cliche, she said it's safe Come dance with me Might the boost, that's the pilot Cliche, she said it's safe One step, two steps, two steps Slide Something this place, there's such a vibe trying your pain in it, bless your vice There's no better state to truck than I Wonder how the soap can survive One in a million, still
5: down it through the most moving different, only for experience Ooh. now she try to let me in Fast forward when she woke up and it let me in, yeah.
3: Lights out
5: Everybody rose, that she stood by X-ray No matter the pain, it's a good night Lights out One step
3: it's on and on. on. And one step, two steps, slide. It's on and on. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for
2: joining the Barbarian Noetics podcast. We are here with a very special guest today. I'm so pleased to introduce you all to Dr. Ken Hammond. Dr. Hammond is a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University, uh, and he is the founder of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University and as well as a writer and activist uh, for Pivot to Peace. And Pivot to Peace is an organization that is trying to uh, trying to build bridges amongst the Chinese-U.S. relations in this time of, unfortunately, building tensions and you know rumblings of this new Cold War. So with all that said, I want to welcome you to the Barbarian Noetics. How are you doing?
6: I'm doing great, and I'm delighted to be here.
2: Well, I'm really, really pleased to speak with you. It's such an honor. And um, so let's go ahead and get right into it. So as I mentioned, I wanted to talk to you because I want to do my part to push back against what I perceive as this kind of um, unnerving increase of tensions, which I think you could really see clearly in the campaign ads in the 2020 election where you had both colors, the red and the blue team, both candidates spewing venom at China and almost seeming to like outdo each other with like these, these xenophobic advertisements. And I thought that was like such a very good example of kind of where we're at, unfortunately, culturally. And um, so I just wanna push back against that. I wanna raise a more nuanced and subtle understanding and what better person to talk to than you, uh, Dr. Hammond. So. Yep. So uh, let's get right into it and talk sure about, thing. <laughs> let's uh, let's really quick, I, I want to talk about the Great Leap Forward. But before we do that, would you mind just giving my listeners a little warp speed tour of uh, the revolution, the victory of the revolution in 1949, and then the lead up to the um, Great Leap Forward?
6: Sure thing. Um, I think that's, you know, if we want to talk about the Great Leap, it's important to, to have that sort of historical itinerary that leads up to it because it's not it's not an event that takes place obviously just just in a vacuum.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: I mean, you know, the the People's Republic is established in October of uh, of uh, 1949 and we're coming up on the 72nd anniversary of that next week. Uh which will be a, you know, I'm sure a big a big celebration in uh, in China. And that that's the culmination of a long period a, a 30 plus year period of political struggle within China, uh, trying to find a a new way to organize society, a new way to to strengthen the country, to allow China to escape from the the domination of foreign imperialism, and uh, uh, that had had been a a long and challenging process, complicated by the invasion by the Japanese in the 1930s and the occupation of much of China Mm -hmm. for about seven or eight years. But uh, finally, by 1949, uh, the Communist Party and the Red Army, uh, the military uh, force that uh, that uh, was the revolution, um, succeeded in defeating uh, their rivals, the Nationalists, and uh, uh, establishing a new a new government. But that that was that was a a very challenging uh kind of success i mean they they that was the goal that was the objective to obtain political power but uh once you do that then the question becomes okay now now what are you going to do with it right so the 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 purpose of the revolution there were probably multiple purposes for the revolution but the basic goal of the revolution to to put it in its simplest form was to develop china into a modern socialist Industrial economy, society, and uh, and there was widespread agreement within the party about that. That was that was everybody's program. And so, at first, at the beginning of the nineteen fifties, uh, the tasks were uh, that that were undertaken were, of course, first of all, simply to stabilize the country. There was rampant inflation. There was a tremendous amount of displaced people, uh, Mm -hmm. refugees from from the fighting areas and things like that. Uh, uh, The government, uh, the old uh, nationalist government had collapsed. And so there was a lot of uh, sort of chaos, especially in the cities. Um, So the first tasks were simply to bring things under control to try to get the system stabilized. And those were addressed uh, pretty efficiently. Uh, there was, of course, the uh, almost immediately the the war in Korea breaks out, uh, mm. and that was also kind of an existential threat to the new government, and so you know that was that was a big challenge. Um, the The new government formed a uh, an alliance, signed a treaty of friendship right away uh, at the end of 1949, beginning in 1950 with the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and uh, you know the Soviet Union, of course, was was a long established socialist state by that time. It had its own particular uh, problems and issues, but it was you know it was there, and they wished to uh, extend assistance to China in its early efforts to develop. So things get off to a to a, a you know a challenging but promising start. Land reform is undertaken. Uh, the redistribution of agricultural land. Uh, much of which had been in the hands of a small elite of landowners, landlords. Uh, and that's redistributed in the years between 1949 and 1952 or so. Um, and that creates a, a new situation in the countryside for the agricultural economy, where, uh, uh, you know, now suddenly everybody has their own, uh, their own land, their own farms. And so agricultural productivity comes back on track. Uh, uh, farmers are not being exploited farmers are uh, you know uh, eager to invest and develop their own uh, resources their own uh, production
3: mm-hmm.
6: and that helps to stabilize the country too it gets the food supply under control it provided interestingly uh, a foundation for the new financial economy the new uh, monetary system the renminbi the the people's currency was uh, was grounded on the value of of agricultural commodities. Uh, which gave it a very solid foundation. So that helped to stop inflation and stabilize the economy that way. So with land reform, with the stabilization of, of the new government, with the, the reigning in of inflation, by 1951, 1952, China was in a, a situation where uh, they could actually start to think about the, the long-term goals of trying to move towards a socialist economy. Uh, They had basically just stabilized the existing order of things, but they wanted to now start moving towards a socialist economy. And at least in the 1950s, that involved basically moving uh, along two uh, kind of parallel and, and somewhat interrelated tracks. One was assistance from the Soviet Union, the Soviet's provided technical advisors, they extended loans to the Chinese government, they provided material assistance of various kinds in terms of uh, equipment, machinery uh, to go into new factories and things like that. So the Soviet Union became a source of industrial productive technology, as well as advice and uh, and financing that could help to, to put that in place and, and get it up and running. But uh, the 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 other track, and, and in some ways the, the larger and, and in the long run more significant track was to continue to develop, to continue to to increase agricultural productivity so that there would be a, a significant agricultural surplus, a significant uh, uh, surplus production in the in the in the agricultural sector of the economy, because that that surplus could then be reallocated. Uh, A lot of grain, for example, wheat, rice, other grains could be sold uh, either domestically or in global markets to raise money that could then be used for investment in industrialization. So one way to continue to advance, to expand or enhance agricultural productivity was through collectivization. The process of collectivization would yield more efficient farms larger scale farms economies of scale that would enhance productivity create greater surpluses and therefore provide more uh, more capital for investment so that process also gets underway collectivization agricultural collectivization in china uh, proceeded in ways that were very different from what the experience of the soviet union had been in the soviet union in the 1930s, late 20s and early 30s, the process of collectivization had been a very top-down kind of kind of process. The party, uh, the, the the Soviet government, had essentially uh, directed this process, imposed this process. It was a very challenging, complex, uh, often violent process in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Um, In China, they wanted to proceed in a rather different way. The the, the, the peasantry, the farming population, had been the base of the revolution. Uh, uh, The vast majority of of the fighters in the Red Army, members of the party, were people who had come from from the countryside, from villages across across the country. One of Chairman Mao's great theoretical insights had been that in China, because of its long history of commercialized agriculture, the peasantry, large swaths of the peasantry, a majority of the farming population, were actually what he called agricultural proletarians. Hmm. Uh, they worked in a in a in a basically capitalist economic nexus, and uh, and and so you know they they were a reasonable and logical base for organizing in the revolution, as well as of course being eighty percent of the population. Mm-hmm. So the, the the position of the peasantry, the position of the farming population in China was very different than it had been in, 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 under the Bolsheviks in Russia. So land reform in China was not, was not something that was imposed by the party on the masses. Hmm. It was something that that certainly the party facilitated, but it was a process that took place step by step in the villages, led by the people, led by the villagers themselves. There hmm. would be party cadres on hand to help facilitate and guide the process. But -hmm. basically, it was a matter of getting people to to talk about their grievances, to talk about uh, the the, the complaints they had, the, uh, the suffering they had endured under the landlords, and then to act upon that by having these sort of mass meetings where they would criticize and repudiate the landlords. Sometimes that got violent. There were landlords that were killed in the process of land reform, and, and mm. you know we don't want to deny that or, or pretend that that didn't happen. Mm. Uh, it was a revolutionary struggle. It was a profound transformation. The, the land tenure system had been around for for literally thousands of years, yeah. And to change that, to create a new system, to sweep that away, it wasn't something that was going to happen just with the stroke of a pen or a couple of speeches. Uh, it was a it was a struggle. Um, it was one in which it was not the people who were being, uh, uh, you know, uh, victimized, uh, but it was the people who were attacking the landlords and, and, uh, and you know, many landlords, of course, survived. It wasn't, it wasn't like wiping out the landlord class, right. but there was some violence. And we have to, we have to acknowledge that. Yeah. But that started the process then that could allow people to start to cooperate with one another. And the building of collectivization in China proceeded bit by bit. First, with with cooperatives, just maybe a few families getting together and pooling their resources, pooling their labor. Then maybe on the scale of a village. Finally, groups of villages, higher level collectives, and eventually uh, 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 they reached by the end of the 1950s. This reached the point where they began to create what they called the people's communes, which were large scale uh, uh, units in, involving maybe the size of of what we would think of as a county here in the United States. So so fairly large. Uh, 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 populations in large areas that were being farmed um, collectively, cooperatively, pooling labor resources, pooling uh, tools and equipment and things like that.
2: Can I ask you a quick question? Of course. Okay. So when I was doing some preliminary research about this, um, I, as you probably aren't, would not be surprised to hear what you learn on the internet is usually incredibly biased, like, especially the first like 85, if you're searching with Google, you know, they have, (laughs) so they, they curate your experience. And so if you just were to look at like the first few, you know, like articles or short videos about this time, uh, you would be, you would, it does not come across what you say, that it was something that was more from the bottom up. It comes Mm -hmm. across as it was like this, uh dictatorial and that that the peasantry was being forced to do all these things so i want to ask you it sounds like up up to the point where the communes are created it was not like that at all it was actually like it was a class thing and that the the peasantry was behind the mission and which makes sense because of the land reform and stuff when the these consolidations were continuing and these communes were created what what was the vibe of the peasantry did were they like on board with that all the way or was there some friction there as like the conglomerations got, got more intense?
6: Well, I'm sure that there were frictions all along. I mean, you know, the idea that it, that it's a bottom-up process, doesn't mean that everybody was exactly on the same page and, and right. saw everything exactly in the same way. There's a wonderful book uh, called function F-A-N-S-H-E-N, Function. uh, uh, um, that, uh, 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 by a, a fellow named William Hinton that, uh, who was on the ground in China at the time. He had gone there through the United Nations and, and lived in a village in, in a province in northwest China and, and spent a lot of time, years in this village and saw, saw this process go through. And that's got a very good eyewitness on the ground description of, of the process of land reform and the early stages of, of cooperativization. Okay. Um, but you know I mean the peasantry is a is a highly differentiated uh society itself uh you know in in back in, before this back in the early 1930s when uh, when uh, Mao Zedong was uh, was an activist in, in in southern China in a province in southern China
3: mm-hmm.
6: he had done uh, he and, and the people he worked with had done a study of uh, of a rural area down there in which they differentiated something like 16 different levels within the the, uh, the the farming population itself you oh, know wow. there were what they called rich peasants middle peasants poor peasants landless peasants uh, there were people at, at a number of different uh, uh, sort of uh, positions within the the, the the sort of economic uh, hierarchy mm-hmm. and so you know sorting this out getting it right in a sense uh, uh, involved uh, certainly negotiation it involved friction it involved uh, on occasion, uh, contention even within uh, within the ranks of of, uh, of, uh, of of the peasantry and the people who were trying to make this process go through. So it isn't again. It isn't as though it was just some some simple, smooth rollout uh, of, of 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 a new situation. It, it's a it's a social negotiation. It's a social process um, that uh, that has all the all the. Uh, the ups and downs and the contradictions within it that that social processes do mm-hmm. but i think that uh, uh you know throughout the process of cooperativization and then collectivization one one reason that it went relatively smoothly in china was that it was successful that is to say at each stage after these these the the latest round of of sort of new organizational forms were implemented Uh, Productivity increased, the harvests got bigger, there was more food, there was more, uh, there were more resources to be had, you know, so from the point of view of the farming population themselves, this was working, and so you know that created an atmosphere of of trust, uh, of reliability. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, that worked, you know, reasonably well. And again, uh, there were variations across the country. Things, you know, things that worked in one place didn't necessarily work as well someplace else. So they had to evolve other responses over there. But that process advanced uh, fairly steadily. And, and when it reaches the stage in 1958, when the people's communes begin to be formed, okay. that too is a, a, you know, I mean... The first communes are formed in, in central China, in Henan and Shandong provinces. And, Chairman Mao makes a visit to that area, and uh, and very famously he makes this comment after after inspecting some of these areas. He says, he says, "People's communes are good, you know. you know. People's communes are good." And that becomes the slogan. That becomes the headline in the papers and on the news <laughs> broadcasts and all this. And around the country, I mean, the party had a, had a lot of credibility. Uh, Chairman Mao was, you know, was like the George Washington type figure, you know. So a lot of people very enthusiastically said, well, let's let's make our own commune, you know. Um, and, and again, sometimes in some places, conditions may not have been entirely ready for that. Uh, but there was a lot of enthusiasm so uh, uh, certainly there were there were contrary voices no doubt in, in mm-hmm. different places at different times but but the general overall direction was 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 pretty positive and, and i think most people were were on board uh, uh, you know uh, pretty pretty reliably you know but as that process goes on and as uh, a surplus from the agricultural sector is being directed into investment in, agri- in industrial development and as the assistance of the Soviet Union is helping to get the industrial economy going so that in urban China, there's development going on as well. Mm-hmm. Questions emerge within the party about not just the goals of building socialism, not just the desirability of industrialization and agricultural collectivization, but sort of how that should be pursued. And, and, and in a sense, what's the role of the party in that process? And that gives rise to what we call the struggle between two lines, okay? okay. The struggle between two lines animates a lot of what happens in China, from the mid '50s down till the end of the 1970s. Okay, one grouping uh, centered around Mao Zedong believed in uh, a kind of what we call a mass mobilization approach. The idea being that that this very enthusiasm of the masses was a was a force. Could really be thought of as almost as a material force in its own right kind of uh of you know what what we sometimes call a, a human capital right okay. that that by working hard by being creative and innovative and dedicated to the to the tasks at hand that the masses of the people could achieve higher levels of productivity uh, uh build The industrial economy develop the agricultural productivity more rapidly so that china's pace of development could be accelerated and that's what the great leap forward is all about it's a great leap forward it's an effort to 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 advance the the process uh, uh more rapidly right so this this mass mobilization model that that was one orientation within the party but there was another uh, grouping centered mostly around a fellow named Liu Shaoqi, uh, and his, uh, sort of number two was, was Deng Xiaoping, mm-hmm. um, and their view was a little different. Their view was that, that the process of economic development was very complicated, uh, uh running factories, uh, uh managing, uh, these, these large agricultural systems. Uh, operating markets on a national basis, trading with uh, with other countries, uh, you know, out in the world, Uh, uh, scientific and technical development, all of these things. These were very complicated tasks. And there were people uh, who were qualified, who had expertise in some of these areas, Mm -hmm. who had experience, had training. And and more people needed to be trained, more people needed to be educated, more people needed to get experience and training in these areas. But those people who had the skills, the talents, the competence to to manage the process of development, they should be given the responsibility to do so and and basically sort of allowed to, to guide and direct the process. So that's that's what was sometimes called the expert position. Uh, Chairman Mao's position was was often called the Reds, and and uh, the other side was was often called the experts. Reds versus experts. Okay. Okay. Um, mass mobilization versus technical expertise. Something something along that. Mm-hmm. And and for a while, you know, those were there were debates and discussions about this. But by the time we get down to the Great Leap, this starts to become a more serious. Uh, 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 dichotomy, a more serious set of divisions, Mm -hmm. because the Great Leap was very much a matter of of, of trying to have this kind of mass mobilization model. Now, all of that is inflected a little bit by the the influence of the Soviet Union, because in the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union had had opted very early on for this kind of expert-led, top-down process of building socialism, what, what their understanding of the process of building socialism. Okay. And so the influence of the soviets in the 50s tended to encourage a more top-down attitude on the part of many people in the party mm-hmm. and this led to problems of what we might call bureaucratization right mm-hmm. that the party comes to be comes to think of itself as a special body within society uh, and 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 there's a tendency in any bureaucratic organization for people to think, "Hey, we know what we're doing. We know, you know, what the problems are and how to handle them. So just get with the program, people, and listen to what we say, and and let's get going." You
2: know? Yeah, we don't know anything about that in the in the modern U.S.
6: <laughs> no, of course, of course, it's an unfamiliar uh, phenomenon here, <laughs> uh, except at the Motor Vehicle Division. But uh, <laughs> everybody's ideal, you know. Yeah. But, uh, 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 the, you know, what happens in the Great Leap is that things, you know, things, they started forming these communes and the idea was that, that uh, they were going to, they were going to push this process of development more rapidly. And the, the key to that, again, was going to be enhanced agricultural productivity. The communes were farming phenomena, mm-hmm. farming enterprises. Um and, and what happens is that, that the, the officials, the cadres within, within the party and, and within the, the state apparatus, engaged in, in a certain uh, wishful thinking, I suppose we could say, but also a certain manipulation,
3: mm.
6: basically an exaggeration of production figures. And it's not like somebody sat down and said, "Oh, we made twice as much as as, as was actually produced." Mm-hmm. But the the people at the at the grassroots level, the officials in you know at the at the production level in the commune, maybe they you know they got the report about we we produced I don't know 150 thousand bushels of of, of wheat, oh. and they said, "Well, that's really good," but. Wouldn't it be better if it was 160,000? Mm-hmm. So they just added a little bit, not a lot, just a little bit, maybe a percent, two percent, something like that.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: And they file that report up to the next level. But that cadre at the next level looks at the report and says, oh, 160,000, that's pretty good. But wouldn't it look better if it was 170,000? Mm -hmm. (laughs) and by the time that goes through let's say four layers maybe five layers up to the central authorities in Beijing instead of 150,000 bushels you're looking at a report that says you've got 210,000 bushels or something like that right Mm -hmm. just little exaggerations at each stage accumulate and and you have a big problem and the problem Mm -hmm. is that those figures were used for two purposes one was to set the targets for next year's production which we're now going to be unreasonably high, you know, well, if you produced 210,000 bushels last year, why don't you go for 250 this year? You know, right. That that was a ridiculous target, but even more problematic is that the procurement levels were set by the harvest. And so if you had, you know, An exaggeration of, I don't know, maybe 20 percent by that point, 30 Mm percent, your procurements, the amount of grain being taken out of the villages to feed Mm. people in the cities and to have as a surplus for investment, it didn't leave enough food in the countryside.
2: What's up, you mellifluous mangoes? We're going to get right back into this episode with Professor Ken Hammond. But first, an important PSA from Americans for a Healthy and Profitable Healthcare Sector.
5: Hi, I'm Jack Jackoff with Americans for a Healthy and Profitable Healthcare Sector. I'm concerned about the direction our healthcare is going in this country. Sometimes, I don't even recognize where we live. I keep hearing cultural Marxists and leftist thugs pushing radical notions about healthcare being a human right. Maybe under socialism, it's a human right. Maybe under some nanny state like Cuba, where they would provide universal healthcare to their people. But this ain't Cuba, you fucks. This is the United States. Built on white supremacy, genocide, slavery, and endless war. We understand where our priorities lie. The weak must die. It's what this country is all about. It's called capitalist Darwinism. We here at Americans for a healthy and profitable healthcare sector understand that profiteering and rent-seeking are sacred covenants. Healthcare CEOs stash billions of dollars in offshore tax havens because they deserve it. Because merit. If you can't afford to see a doctor, you don't deserve to see a doctor. Die like a dog and make room for the real Americans to siphon the surplus labor of peons on the streets. Catch it out the window of my Lambo. You'll pay to save your loved ones because you don't have a choice. Or you won't pay because you can't and that makes you expendable. Brought to you by Americans for
2: a healthy and profitable healthcare sector. Insuring private insurance firms, massive healthcare conglomerates and big pharma continue to hold the health of your loved ones hostage since 1932. You don't like it? Die or leave the country, bitch.
5: Chanel on my lens Don't worry what's yeah. oh. dans un oh. mirror clean Elle ambiance bien ce qu'elle kiffe Pleine
4: nuit parle, la folle d'un club L'alcool en bruce Ouche dans un oh. mirror clean oh. I suis dans my baies, Elle passe vers moi, mais
5: spray. With the bride, cheese, cheese. I'm a man on the mission, I'm a missionary True religion, imagine is necessary Man's got a vision, I'm a visionary Choppers in the sky like the military Oh Fendi on my coach cool, I stop me Man super sharp like I trap me Mummy one smoke come copy Instead give me top that's sloppy oh, yeah. I sizzle sizzle Man's hot for sizzle shizzle shizzle Head shot that's a whistle Oh yeah oh, for a rizzle. N'a like eyes eyes ou froze. She says she love me for my clothes. Yeah, keep it ten toes. Walk in the place like when I was all Il, somebody, doesn't mean does I And a club.
4: Elle curl on push. somebody, doesn't mean I clean. Shit on my bees, bees. i pass where I'm straight, straight. cry,
6: cheese, cheese that's where the problem struck because there was widespread hunger. Mm
3: -hmm. And
6: again, you know, I mean, you hear these ridiculous claims of 60 million people dying. That's, that's, Mm -hmm. that's nuts, but certainly a few million people died. And, uh, and that's unacceptable. You know, that's not a, uh, that's not a a desirable or or an acceptable outcome. Mm -hmm. And that caused a big crisis Uh, and there was conflict within the party. Uh, the the mass mobilization people, Mao and his people, they held the bureaucratic establishment within the party responsible. Mm-hmm. But the party cadres, the sort of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, well, the, the, the expertise, the, the, the pragmatists within the party, they said, no, the problem was all this mass enthusiasm. And that put too much pressure on people. And that's why things got out of hand, you know, so they, 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 they struggled. They continued to, to, to struggle with each other. There were, they, they rolled back some of the policies to uh, allow for private farming on, on household plots. And that produced a, a little bit of an increase in the food supply in the countryside. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the, the crisis, the worst of the crisis was the second half of 1959 and the first half of 1960. Mm-hmm. It took until 1962 really for productivity to again go higher than it had been in 58 so 59 60 61 those are the tough the tough years mm-hmm. um, so it was an economic crisis but it was also a political crisis mm-hmm. okay and uh you know that that became a real well it, it's not so much a turning point as a as just a, a, a kind of milestone a marker. In this, in this long process of the struggle between two lines. Mm-hmm. Chairman Mao had to uh, step down for a while mm-hmm. from the day-to-day oversight of party operations. He mm-hmm. remained as chairman, uh, but he stepped down as president of the People's Republic. Liu Shaoqi becomes president of the People's Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other side, uh, a figure, a key figure, a fellow named Peng Dehuai, who had been Minister of Defense, he had to step down. He had been one of the, the sort of pragmatist expert types who had who had been very critical of the whole mob, mass mobilization model. He has to step down. He gets put in charge of uh, uh, industrialization off in the Southwest. Um, you know, so, so both sides have to kind of give up something. Uh, and, and the fundamental conflict remains unresolved. Okay, so that's that's how we get to the Great Leap. And that's kind of that's kind of what what happens uh, in the Great Leap. The the last thing I I think that that we want to make sure to pay attention to with the Great Leap was that it wasn't just. About increasing agricultural productivity, the Great Leap was was in many ways a, a. A comprehensive radical experiment, because. The goal, certainly the primary goal was increasing productivity, but they also achieved some other things. For, for one thing, probably most importantly, there was a lot of infrastructure building. Uh, mass mobilization was a great way uh, to, to build reservoirs, to upgrade uh, irrigation systems, to, uh, to work on flood control dynamics maintaining the dikes along some of the rivers and things like that. Those were huge infrastructure projects that China didn't have the modern mechanisms to manage, but by mobilizing literally millions of workers, they could do this uh, in a way that, that created infrastructure, hydraulic infrastructure that still works today, is still important for agricultural productivity today. So that was a real accomplishment of the Great Leap. Uh, that, that often gets ignored or overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the Great Leap was a social program. Uh, there's a lot of talk uh, when you read the critical accounts of the Great Leap. Uh, often there's a lot of, of sort of mocking of the idea of, of uh, the, the, the common dining halls and the shared child care and things like that.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: But those were, in fact, efforts to organize life in a more communal way to create a, a, a shared society. Uh, it isn't that you know they were they were destroying families or anything. You know, people worked by day and then they they took their kids home at night, and it was you know not unlike uh, people in America sending their kids to daycare. You know, I mean, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, here, it's a commercial enterprise. There, it was something that was part of the structure of the community. You know, so mm-hmm. it's a, a you know it's a standard sort of sort of dichotomy. There was also an effort, and this, too, gets mocked in the the Western literature, at trying to develop at least some components of industrial productivity in the countryside. You know, all the way back in the Communist Manifesto in 1848, Marx and Engels wrote about one of the goals of the revolution, one of the goals of socialism, being to overcome the division, the separation, the antagonism. Between rural and urban life,
3: right?
6: That that the benefits of urban life, which they certainly were very cognizant of, <laughs> should be extended in one way or another to uh, to rural society. It shouldn't be that 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 the countryside is backward and primitive and poor, while mm-hmm. the cities are you know bright and shining and modern. Everybody should be in you know should should be part of this shared process, and so. You know, you you read about these these so called backyard steel furnaces, right? Uh, and and that was a problematic enterprise. A lot of the a lot of what went on with that wasn't uh, wasn't particularly successful, um, and and that that the parts that weren't successful were abandoned fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. But other kinds of of, uh, of small scale local kind of light industry began to be developed at that point. And uh, many of those were were successful, and many of those continued to operate uh, in the following years. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, much later, in the the 1980s, there was a a huge wave of what were called township and village enterprises. And because those were part of the reform program, they got a much better review in, in Western, you know, in bourgeois media. Uh, but they were similar. They were basically the same thing as these enterprises back in the Great Leap. Uh, those were socialist; These were more market-oriented. So it was, you know, you could condemn one and praise the other, but actually they were very much the same kind of, of activities.
2: Interesting. So you mentioned that uh, Mao kind of held the bureaucratic apparatus of the party responsible for the famine that did occur. Um, what What would you say about like, Because obviously, the the mythology that we're fed, what we're propagandized is like that Mao is like Satan incarnate or something like that, and that everything is like Mao's, you know, doing. Do you think that that was fair that like how how much responsibility do you think it's a hard question to answer, but how much responsibility do you think Mao actually had for what happened?
5: Well, I think, you know.
6: For one thing, uh, decision making in, in China was not, you know, it was not just a, a one person thing. It's not like Chairman Mao got up one day and said, hey, let's have a great leap forward. You know, yeah, these things were these were policies that evolved and developed in a in a situation of collective leadership and and of and of of a of a large party by by 1959 there were 10 million members in the communist party mm-hmm. uh, you know there were it was a, a an organization spread spread across the country and you know in the west of course uh, uh the 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 mythology the the narrative has to be that uh, that, that Mao was a dictator, or the Communist Party was a dictatorial authoritarian party, that there's no democracy, you know, and all that. But, you know, the, the reality on the ground is that, uh, that the Communist Party is organized along uh, the principles of what they call democratic centralism, which means that within the party, when, when policies are being debated, Everybody gets to say what they think. And there were there were intense debates within the party about these developmental strategies. And when a decision is made, that decision is binding on the members of the party, right? It might come up again if things don't go well. And certainly in the case of the Great Leap is an example of that. Mm-hmm. Decisions were made, put into practice. They didn't go well. So further debates took place. Changes were made; those were put into practice. Later on, further debates took place. You know, this idea that that somehow Chairman Mao was—I don't know—sitting around in his study just sending out memos saying do this and do that—it just doesn't accord with the the realities. Uh, you know, I mean, the basic realities of life, but certainly not with the realities of, of the organization and operation of the Communist Party and the government of of the People's Republic. Mm-hmm. So, I mean. Mao was the most respected figure. He was the leader of the party. Uh, Down till 59, he was the president of the People's Republic. Of course, he was responsible uh, in a sense. He's at the top of the hierarchy. He's responsible for encouraging and facilitating and supporting these policies of of the Great League. Uh, But, you know, the idea somehow you get get these portrayals that, uh, that he was some sort of a monster who... Who designed the Great Leap so that millions of people would die. Right. You know? And and I mean, that's absurd, you know. Uh it's yeah. just, it doesn't connect with reality really at any point. As the party became aware of uh, and the government became aware of the problems that were emerging, and they did by the spring of 59, you know, they convened meetings, they had work sessions, they tried to get better information, you know, they had to sort of in a sense deconstruct this. Um, this false picture that had been created. Mm -hmm. Uh, But by that point, these allocations had been made. You know, uh, a lot of the grain had been sold. You can't just go out and collect it back and put it back, you know. So they had to wait to get the next harvest going. There was bad weather that summer of 59. Uh, the Soviets uh, uh, withdrew their assistance. That complicated things even Oh, more. That,
2: that was that year that they withdrew yeah, their yeah, assistance.
6: Yeah, the, the, the Russians had been uh, increasingly critical of this mass mobilization model. Mm. And they just saw the Great Leap as the last straw. They were like, you guys are adventurous. You're out of control. We're not going to be a party to this. Uh, and so they, they shut down their uh, aid projects. They recalled all of their advisors. And they demanded that the Chinese pay back the loans that had been extended. So that put a serious whack wow. on, the, on, on the government's finances. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it, it shut down projects that have, you know, in, in the middle of construction. It, mm-hmm. it was massively disruptive. So, yeah. so it's, a, it's kind of a triple whammy. You've got the problems of the distorted statistics about grain production. You've got the withdrawal of Soviet assistance. And you've got the end of a long stretch of good weather. All through the 50s, the summer weather had been really good. 59 hits. I don't know if it's like some, you know, El Nino event or whatever, but there's a shift in the weather patterns. Harvest drop. Mm. Uh, so not, not only were the figures exaggerated, but there was actually a drop in, in production. Man. Uh, and that, you know, all of those things together made things really bad. But it, it took time. You know, they didn't have... The internet and instant communication and a, and a completely uh, uh, seamless uh, system to work with. It took time to to figure out the problems. Time to figure out how to respond to them. They yeah. did that, but you know, China had six hundred million people by that time. You can't turn that truck on a dime. You know,
2: was it, it about one quarter of the world's population at that time?
6: Uh, a fifth, maybe. A
2: fifth. Okay. Yeah.
6: Yeah. yeah. That's. It's usually about a fifth
2: okay yeah because that's the other thing to keep in mind how you talk about how like when when you you use words like the peasantry for example like in any context that's absurd anytime you try to like make generalizations about any kind of block of people people are very unpredictable and complex and yeah again you're dealing with one-fifth of the world's population so yeah i just i think that's important to kind of keep that in mind so let's uh let's let's move forward now so you said that by uh Did you say by like 1962 that they were able to get the production, the agricultural production kind of back on track? Yeah,
6: harvests in 62 are bigger than they'd been in 58. So there's this dip in 59, 60, 61, improving in 61, but not up again to levels above 58. That doesn't happen until, until
2: 62. and of course, there's never any credit given for like. I mean, I imagine that was a pretty complicated maneuver to turn that ship around. The fact that they successfully did it, it's absolutely, impressive.
3: absolutely,
2: yeah. it
6: was a, it was a, it was a big challenge. Uh, and and uh, you know, and again, of course, it was after all the party which then mobilized the resources and the and the personnel to go out and make those changes. Yeah. Right. Uh, so the party was able to respond, uh, and and that. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think that that also needs to be uh, remembered and, and taken into account, you know, it's, again, in, in, in Western bourgeois accounts, you know, it's always like, there's this disaster. And, uh, and, and then and then later, things were different, you know, <laughs> right. uh, you, you know without, without kind of dealing with how how that was addressed, you know, right, right. So, yeah.
2: So let's talk about then the years leading up to between when when the uh, the harvest is larger than it was in 1958 up until the accounts are so I assume this is probably not as cut and dry as this but the cultural revolution supposedly started in like 1969 around there 66 uh, 66 okay so what happened in the anything of note in those intervening years between 1962 and 1966
6: sure sure well that's a it's a transitional period um there's a uh there's a a little um, a little wave of, uh, of political maneuvering in 62 and 63 that's called the Socialist Education Movement. Okay. And that was an effort uh, initiated by uh, the, the sort of uh, Maoist side within the party to investigate the situation out in the countryside. Uh, how were things going? What was the relationship between the party and the masses? Uh, a lot of young people uh, had been sent out to the countryside uh, in the wake of, of the Great Leap to help uh, on the farms. Again, to help another way of helping to get uh, agricultural productivity back up. Um, and at first, when the socialist education movement got started, the Chairman Mao and his associates hoped that that would be a, a way to sort of address these bureaucratic tendencies within the party Uh, because especially in the countryside this this as as had been demonstrated in the great leap this could be a problem Mm -hmm. so how could the links between ordinary people between the farming population the villagers and and the party in the countryside how how could those be made more effective and more efficient but what happened was, not, not surprisingly, when uh, uh, investigators, I suppose you might say, came from the center, came from, from the cities to the villages, mm-hmm. the the local party officials, uh, you know, wanted to, wanted to kind of divert their attention. They didn't want them to pay attention to, to what they were doing. <laughs> and so they talked about sort of, you know, leftover landlord elements. Or hidden rightists, you know, and things like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this this they they came up with a, a, a phrase for this. They called it uh, uh, turning aside the spear point. Right. In other words, uh, the the investigators were coming, you know, with their spear directed towards the, the the cadres, and the cadres would turn the spear point aside and say, "Oh, <laughs> look at look at these bourgeois elements over here. This family <laughs> used to be a landlord and." You know, yeah. look, they still have an extra ox or something, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and that was very frustrating for, for Mao uh, and, and his uh, his associates, his followers. So the, the expert side, the other side, also, you know, they were also pursuing some of their own initiatives, you know. Uh, trying to push back against the mass mobilization model, and one of the things that they did, um, there was a play that was written uh, in 1960 uh, during the during the Great Leap, uh, during the you know efforts to deal with the Great Leap, mm-hmm. and it was performed at the Capitol Theater in Beijing, you know, national national, would mean, like having a show on Broadway, you know.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, Called uh, uh, Hai Rai Dismissed from Office. And it was a story of a Ming Dynasty official who had dared to criticize the, the emperor at that time uh, for his uh, unjust policies towards uh, the peasants, right? Mm. And uh, uh, it was written by a, a very prominent historian of the Ming, a great historian of the Ming, a fellow named Wuhan. Um, but he was also the deputy mayor of Beijing. Mm. and uh, uh, it was, uh, it was a, a, a play that was part of the, the cultural struggle, uh, and it was, a, you know, it was an allegory. It was, a, it was you know, the, the emperor was supposed to be Mao, and right. Hairei was supposed to be maybe Peng Dehuai, the official who had been dismissed, um, and and the idea was that uh, that Chairman Mao was behaving like an emperor and was putting bad policies into place against the interests of the people and blah blah mm-hmm. blah. Well, by the fall of 1965, uh, these these tensions between the the Reds and the experts, let's say, uh, were were continuing to fester. And Chairman Mao had been in many ways kind of marginalized. As I said, he had, he had stepped down from day-to-day management of the party affairs. but he found by the summer late summer of '65 that, that he wasn't he wasn't getting a lot of traction in his efforts to, to make his arguments about, about things within the party.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: And uh, in particular, He was concerned about this play that had been performed. There had been some historical discussion of it or some academic discussion of it in the the following couple of years. Mm -hmm. He wanted to have an article published uh, that was critical of this, but the papers in Beijing wouldn't publish it. Oh, wow. Chairman Mao, and he couldn't get this article published in the People's Daily or the Guangming Daily, which is the the paper that the intellectuals read. and that was that kind of freaked him out, right? Mm-hmm. So, in November of sixty-five, uh, of he has one of his uh, one of his uh, staff, a fellow named Yao Wenyuan, Yuan, um, write uh, an essay of, uh, expressing their views about uh, about this play, and they published it in Shanghai. Uh, uh, Yao Wenyuan Yuan was in Shanghai; he had a base of operations there. He was part of the party mechanism in shanghai um and and even after it was published in shanghai they had a hard time getting it picked up in the national papers hmm. they did eventually but that that's sort of the first the very first uh, uh, salvo if you will um in what's going to become the cultural revolution okay. this this struggle about culture about things like plays as a as an arena within which these larger political issues were going to be thrashed out. You yeah. Know. Who was, you know, what was the proper orientation of the party? What were the proper policies with regard to, to the agricultural sector? Uh, you know, how should criticism uh, within the party be, be managed and handled? What should the relationship between the party and the masses be? Mm-hmm. And by the spring of 66, uh, this becomes this, that's, when, that's when the Cultural Revolution, per se, is really launched. Uh, and, and even at that point, it's a matter of intense debate and conflict within the party leadership, right? There are all these meetings that are held. Documents are produced. Uh, there's a set of, uh, of uh, positions that are staked out in April. Those get criticized and overturned in May. By the summer, they're sending so-called work teams out to the universities because the great universities in Beijing, Beijing University, Tsinghua University, uh, uh, the the Aeronautics Institute, all all these places, students had begun to mobilize. Listening to what Chairman Mao was saying about how the masses, the people needed to be critical of the party. They shouldn't just accept the leadership of the party, if the way they saw it the party wasn't doing the right thing okay and so criticisms of the bureaucratization of the party began to be expressed uh, most famously um, uh, 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 a woman at, at beijing university put up uh, 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 uh what they call a big character poster you know a, a big sheet of paper with uh, with this big big writing on it. you know not not a little handout essay but a, a big thing a big like a not a billboard but a big poster you know yeah um and and chairman Mao praised that he said this is good you know and in mm-hmm. fact he made his own big character poster and had somebody stick it up at beijing university okay. um, and by that summer uh uh the, the the this the mass mobilization of the cultural revolution starts getting underway uh and and then starting at the end of august you have the red guard rallies million people gathering in Tiananmen Square. They had eight of those in the course of the fall of 1966. Oh, wow. Um, The universities closed down. Uh, There's all the struggle on the campuses. Uh, uh, It spreads, of course, across the country to other cities and towns. There's huge mobilizations down in Shanghai. Shanghai becomes, in some ways, the the red center of, of the cultural revolution. Uh, uh, mass organizations of workers come together. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it goes beyond just students on campuses. Uh, in Shanghai, you had literally 2 million workers in factories and dockyards and warehouses and all this stuff that become part of these, these mass political uh, movements. That leads to what to me has always been the kind of high point of the Cultural Revolution, which comes in February of 1967. And that's something called the Shanghai Commune because on February 5th of 67, there's a huge rally. Two, there were sort of two kind of rival workers' organizations, but they come together mm. and they, they march down to the, to the heart of Shanghai, down by the river, and which is where the, the headquarters of the Municipal Party Committee was. And they they overthrow wow. the, the Shanghai Municipal Communist Party Committee, right? Wow! And they set up what they called the Shanghai Commune. Uh, the masses of, of the workers, these two mass organizations, elected a leading body, uh, uh, a, a commune uh, a committee, I suppose you'd say. And for the next three weeks, they ran the city of Shanghai. Wow. So that was, you know, this was inspired by the uh, the, the, the Paris commune back in 1871. Yeah, and for sure. About and all that, you know, that totally. had been uh, a subject of a lot of study. And so it was an, an obvious uh, uh, model. And and now they were trying to implement what they thought of as you know, direct proletarian democracy yeah. in, in the largest city in China. You That's know, fascinating, sort of a crazy moment, right? Yeah. Well, Representatives from the commune, including Yao Wenyuan, who had written that that first essay, um, go up to Beijing to meet with Chairman Mao. Because by now, I mean, there's 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 cultural revolution stuff going on all around the country. There's Red Guard movements, sometimes rival Red Guard movements, uh, uh, emphasizing different uh, different parts of of their programs. Uh, There's workers movements, young workers, especially, Uh, uh, you know, the the, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, is engaged in a big uh, program of studying the teachings of Chairman Mao and all this. so these representatives from the commune go up and they meet with with chairman Mao, and the chairman makes i think probably the most important decision uh uh, of this of this whole period and and, and in some ways the most important decision uh, since 1949 which is that he tells them that uh, uh you know, obviously mobilizing the workers is great. The workers need to 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 be there. They need to express their views. They need to, to hold the party responsible. They need to make the party be responsive to the needs of the people, but you can't overthrow the party. You have to have the party. He says, overthrowing the party is like cutting off somebody's head, right? Uh, The party is what coordinates things, the party is what what gives the revolution coherence and and, and focus and, and guidance and direction and all this.
2: This concludes part one of my talk with Professor Hammond, and part two will drop next week. I just want to thank Professor Hammond again for coming on the show and sharing his insights and very extensive knowledge with us. I really appreciate it, Professor Hammond. I hope you guys uh, enjoyed it as well and learned something, and you'll enjoy and learn even more next week with part two. Welcome to the end of the show. We're out here on this catamaran in the Pacific Ocean off the Azores Islands. And uh, you can hear the sound of the waves, the wind rustling through the sails. It's peaceful as fuck. And uh, what a better way to, uh, what better, what better uh, ambiance to end the show than hanging out on this catamaran on the ocean and keeping with the ocean motif and the sailing motif. I'm going to be reading again from the book Adrift by Stephen Callahan, let's uh, let's tune out the sound of the waves a little bit there so I'm not screaming into the microphone. <laughs> uh, Stephen Callahan, 76 days lost at sea. I'm going to read a little bit from this book, I've read from it before, and then we're going to hear the story of Jose Salvador Alvarenga, who was lost at sea for over a year, for 438 days. But first... Uh, We're going to touch base here with Stephen Callahan in Adrift. Six pints of water are left. Is it enough for another 16 days? Perhaps I can catch some rain. Just hang on for 20 days. As long as the raft does not get damaged, I have a chance. Suddenly a fin slashes through the surface in front of the raft. I leap to the opening. Fumbling with one of the paddles to beat it off, I see the svelte, cool blue form cruising under me. It doesn't struggle to pace us. As the next wave passes, clouding my view, the form rockets ahead and is lost to sight. He is is small, a four-foot oceanic bullet. Out of the corner of my eye I see the slice of of another fin racing down the face of the next wave. It cuts diagonally toward me and shoots by just in front. It is not a shark. It is a fish. A fish. It is one beautiful, food-filled, sweet blue fish. Quickly rummaging through my emergency bag, I claw out the spear gun and arrow. Wait, what if he is a strong fish? I hurriedly tie a piece of line through the gun handle and onto the raft. My stomach growls, four days on a pound of food. I'm trembling with excitement. I must watch the waves. With my weight on the low side, a breaker might easily capsize us. At times I must leap back to windward and hang on until the foaming eruption subsides. Meanwhile, I observe the Dorados. They are three to four feet long and must weigh 20 to 30 pounds. Their power will make them difficult to catch. A sailor in the Canaries once told me of a Dorado that knocked a boat's cockpit to pieces, including a bolted down steering wheel pedestal. A continuous dorsal fin stretches from the squared off head down the aquamarine back to a bright yellow finned tail. It is their tails that are visible from far away, piercing the surface as they body surf down waves. These fish are widely renowned for agility, strength, beauty, and good eating. I've never caught one or even seen one in the ocean before. The sea is obviously not a threat to them. It is their home, their playground. A few cruise by about six feet away, just out of range. But in their curiosity, they swing close every now and then. Surface refraction makes it difficult to aim, and the lurching raft is a poor platform from which to shoot. My few attempts miss widely. Hunger continues to gnaw as the sun sets. Another two days bring more sun, wind, sea, and Dorados. Leaping out of the sea in 10-foot arcs and landing on their sides, they look like agile, breaching whales. I'd drool if only my mouth could summon more than sticky saliva. Come, my beauties, come just a bit closer. I coo to them. But when they approach, my spear misses the mark. Let's go down into the hold here. where are uh, away from the sound of the waves. I haven't heard this back yet, just in case the recording's annoying with the waves. <laughs> Uh, a little bit more my mind creates fantasies of food and drink and turns continuously back continually back to Solo to the pounds of fruits, nuts, and vegetables and the gallons of food within her I see myself opening lockers and pulling out food I plan how I might have saved her shifted stores, dumped ballast raised her in mid-ocean to sail again what if we hadn't become separated what if we hadn't left the canaries what if, what if Stop it, she's gone. Concentrate on now, on survival. Take a quick break and then we'll get back with story, uh, the story of Jose Salvador Alvarenga. We're back up on the main deck of the catamaran. Let's take a look. Oh, yeah, look at those waves. Feel those knots tighten. Oh, it's getting wild and crazy up in here. All right, let's let's go down into the hold so that the sound of the waves and the ropes are a little less all-encompassing. And now let's hear about the incredible story of Jose Salvador Alvarenga who survived 438 days adrift in the Pacific. With just a few basic supplies and an empty ice chest, Jose Alvarenga survived for over a year at sea by himself. Jose Alvarenga was an experienced fisherman, well-versed in the ways of the sea after years spent fishing commercially. But even the most experienced fishermen are no match for the strength of a tropical storm, especially when they're in a 15-foot skiff with no way to steer, no food, and a horribly inexperienced fishing mate. In late 2012, that's exactly where Alvarenga found himself, and exactly where he would find himself for the next 438 days. Jose Alvarenga Sets Out From the moment it began, Jose Alvarenga's fishing trip seemed doomed. He had planned on taking a 30-hour deep sea fishing shift, which would hopefully yield sharks, marlins, and sailfish. The three were particularly lucrative fish, and if plentiful enough, would land him a hefty sum of money. In the fishing village of Costa Azul, Mexico, the competition was high, and Alvarenga was hoping to bring back an impressive haul. Unfortunately, his usual fishing mate, another seaworthy fisherman who worked for his employer, Villermino Rodriguez, backed out at the last minute. Alvarenga wasn't worried though and selected another fisherman with Rodriguez's company, a young fisherman named Ezequiel Cordoba. Though he had never worked with Cordoba before or even spoken to him, Alvarenga deemed the inexperienced young man fit for the journey. After all, it was to be a short one, just over a day long, and they should be relatively close to shore throughout. On November 17th, The pair set out on a 24-foot fiberglass skiff with a small motor. On board were various fishing tools, a portable electronic radio, and a large icebox to hold the fish. The journey seemed like it would be as bountiful as Alvarenga hoped, as before long, the two had caught over 1,000 pounds of fish, almost overloading their icebox. A few hours into their journey, A storm struck that lasted five days. Jose Alvarenga and Cordoba attempted to steer the boat back towards shore, but it was impossible to see where the shore was in the rain. Their boat was weighed down by the fish, and in order to make maneuvering easier, they were forced to dump their bountiful catch. They survived mostly on the rainwater that poured from the sky and the minimal food that they had brought with them. When the storm finally cleared, the men were able to assess the damage. Their motor was gone, the fishing gear was lost or damaged, and most of the portable electronics were damaged. There was enough charge in the two-way radio's backup battery for Alvarenga to get a mayday message to Rodriguez, but it died before the pair's location could be established. Left with only a few basic supplies, no radio and no motor, Alvarenga and Cordoba were effectively stranded. Hoping that his message to Rodriguez would result in their rescue, but knowing there were no guarantees, the two men slowly began to survive off the sea. Though Cordoba was rather useless, being such an inexperienced fisherman, Jose Alvarenga was able to catch fish, turtles, jellyfish, and seabirds with his bare hands. They collected rainwater when they could, but usually kept hydrated from a mixture of turtle blood and their own urine. So next time you're having a bad day and you feel like bitching, just think about Jose Alvarenga and his inexperienced fishing partner lost in the Pacific, uh, staying hydrated from a mixture of turtle blood and their own urine. Yikes. Soon the days turned into weeks and the weeks into months. The two had long given up hope of rescue efforts and were relying on being seen by passing planes or drifting into a shipping lane. However, without any way of navigating, the possibility of being seen even by accident was becoming a dim one. Jose Salvador Alvarengo was able to keep himself busy and keep track of the time by charting the phases of the moon. Growing up on the water and spending most of his life at sea, he had become used to a diet of seafood, a reliance on the sun and moon, and the harsh salty air. Ezekiel Cordoba, however, was not. By the fourth month, Cordoba was mentally and physically drained. His body was beginning to suffer the effects of life lost at sea, and he'd begun to get sick from eating raw fish, birds and turtles. Soon after he got sick, he stopped eating, eventually starving himself to death. Adrift Alone in the Open Ocean For six days after Ezequiel Cordoba's death, Jose Alvarenga left his body untouched. Left alone for the first time in nearly half a year, he contemplated suicide. Finally, he disposed of Cordoba's body and with renewed faith pushed himself to survive. They didn't include this in the story, but apparently Cordoba had requested that Alvarenga not eat his body after he died. And so Alvarenga left his body alone and then threw it overboard after six days because I guess he realized that he was starting to go insane keeping his corpse on on the boat with him. After counting the 15th lunar cycle and spending over 400 days at sea, Alvarenga finally saw what he'd been dreaming of for over a year, land. His small beaten up skiff had drifted south to a remote corner of the Marshall Islands, roughly 6,000 miles from where he had set out on his journey. Upon abandoning his craft and swimming to shore, he knocked on the door of a small beach house. The couple could hardly believe his tale and alerted authorities immediately. The police were shocked at the story, having assumed that Jose Alvarenga had perished over eleven months ago, but here he was, alive and surprisingly well for his situation. His parents and young daughter, whom he hadn't spoken to in quite some time but had maintained a pleasant relationship, were overjoyed upon his return, as was his boss. It turned out that Rodriguez had sent a search party for him, but in the storm, the visibility was too low. By the time the storm had cleared, Everyone had assumed that the two fishermen and the little boat were long gone. Life back on land for Jose Salvador Alvarenga Initially not many people believed Jose Alvarenga's story. For one, Alvarenga seemed far too healthy to have spent over a year at sea. Thin, his hair and beard overgrown, and his skin weathered from the sea and sun, yes. But surely a year and several months alone with no food or fresh water would have emaciated him beyond belief. At the very least, doctors theorized, he should have scurvy. Several maritime experts also pointed out that one would have had to sail in a particularly straight line to reach the point of the Marshall Islands, which would have been near impossible with no steering mechanism or navigation system. However, several doctors pointed out that his sea diet, which consisted mostly of bird and sea turtle meat, actually contained high amounts of vitamin C, which would have done well to prevent the scurvy. The discrepancy over his route was also cleared up when a University of Hawaii study proved that ocean currents would have directed him right to the island he landed on. Jose Salvador Alvarenga also faced a lawsuit upon his return from the family of Ezequiel Cordoba. The lawsuit alleged that Alvarenga never threw Cordoba's body overboard, but instead ate him, using his body to sustain him. His lawyer firmly denied the claims, and Alvarenga even passed a lie detector test to prove it. Today, Alvarenga lives in El Salvador in a small town surrounded by land as far from the water as he can get. So like I say, the next time you're having a hard day, someone's an asshole at work, you stub your toe, some car cuts you off, just think about Jose Salvador Alvarenga, nine months in, his partner having perished, alone, drifting in the Pacific Ocean, Drinking turtle blood, and hey, it could be worse. <laughs> so I'm going to take us out now with the the sound of this catamaran and uh, across the Pacific Ocean. And uh, if you could please support the podcast, I would I would love you guys forever. Just one dollar a month is all I'm asking. patreoncom noetics You get a dream interpretation and an original haiku when you sign up, as well as my eternal gratitude. Rate, review, and subscribe to the BMP, y'all. I need more reviews. I need reviews on Apple Podcasts. I need reviews on Castbox. Spread the word and tell a friend. Let's grow our tribe of philosopher barbarians, and let's let's uh, let's see. I'm trying to come up with a (laughs) a little metaphor here. Let us sail out. Let us embark on our journey to a more egalitarian Earth, in the same way that. Stephen Callahan embarked it on his journey of floating across the ocean for 76 days. And may the journey be just as successful as both Callahan and Jose Alvarenga. And with that, I bid you adieu for this week, everybody. Much love. I send lots of good vibes to you from the, the hazy, cloudy autumn desert to wherever you may be in the rabbit holes of space and time. Be excellent to one another this week. I love you, and I'll talk to you soon. Peace. this segment. I was going to include it um, in the main body of the show but I decided to put it, tack it here on the end because these themes already were kind of alluded to in the cold open but um, I just wanted to just put it out there for whoever is meant to hear this. I'm quite concerned about uh, what's going on right now with the, the Facebook hack and the Facebook whistleblower and, and how that might play into this, uh, the, the massive cyber attack that Klaus Schwab and World Economic Forum has been warning about. So that's what this segment is about uh, for those who have stumbled upon it. All right. Thanks, guys. Peace. Alright, beloved listeners. Before we get into this interview, I just want to speak from the heart about something that I think is really important. Um, I don't want to be alarmist, uh, but I just I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't speak my truth, what my gut is is telling me to express right now. So I'm really concerned about what's happening in the world of cybersecurity in light of the latest uh, shit show with Facebook. And I'm gonna get into why. So a few episodes ago, Dr. Sylvie Salinger and I talked about Cyber Polygon, which is an, an- it's it started in 2019 and it's now an annual simulation. So it's happened in 2020 and, and again in 2021. It's a live exercise simulation to repel a supply chain attack on several large corporations by some quote-unquote rogue state. Among the world's banking elite, they, they believe that the end result would be a crash to the global financial system. Some speculate that such a crash, disguised as a simulation, is an actual elite goal so that if when the simulation goes live, the crash would allow the installation of a digital social credit system, a key foundation component for the elite's great reset. So, in Cyberpolygon, Klaus Schwab himself warns that these attacks, and he, he puts emphasis on ransomware attacks, as well as viruses and computer worms, these attacks are going to start, he says, they're going to start small in disparate sectors with minimal, some effects but minimal effects, and then they're going to build to bigger and bigger platforms and, and then it's going to crescendo into this massive, coordinated cyber attack that's going to bring down the global supply chain. So, before CyberPolygon was even a simulation, there was Stuxnet. And Stuxnet is a malicious computer worm first uncovered in 2010 and thought to have been in development since at least 2005. Um, Although neither country has openly admitted responsibility, the worm is widely understood to be a cyber weapon built jointly by the United States and Israel in a collaborative effort known as Operation Olympic Games. And Iran was by far the most impacted country by the attack. Um, Iran had almost 60% of the infected computers in Stuxnet. And of course, Iran is a, a state enemy of both the United States and Israel, so that would makes sense. So since Stuxnet, then we had the cyber polygon simulation. And now in just the past few months, um, we've had all these other events. So let me bring up my notes here really quick. So after Stuxnet, there was the SolarWinds attack. And the SolarWinds was a major cyber attack in 2020. Uh, It was blamed on Russia, but no one knows who did it, and it penetrated thousands of organizations globally, including multiple parts of the United States federal government, leading to a series of data breaches. The cyber attack and data breach were reported to be among the worst cyber espionage incidents ever suffered by the U.S. due to the sensitivity and high profile of the targets and the long duration, eight to nine months, in which the hackers had access without anyone discovering. So... 2020, there's, so this is at right in the mid, right after the first cyber polygon simulation, you have uh, the SolarWinds cyber attack, thought to be the worst cyber espionage incidents ever suffered by the U.S., then soon after that, you had the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack which affected supply of oil in texas and some other states and people had to wait in line for gas you know for a few days so that's an example of it was a successful attack it disrupted the supply chain that it was targeting which was the oil and gas and it did actually cause some disruptions but like klaus schwab said the disruptions were kind of uh relatively minimal in that they were held to a certain region you know, and some people were, a few people were really highly affected by it, but the rest of the country was, was minimally affected. And so now, in just the past two weeks, we've had the Facebook blackout, where Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp all went down for about five hours, I think it was about five hours. And they're still trying to figure out, you know, this, this blackout comes out of nowhere, no one knows, I think we're still trying to figure out, like, what it even really was, what caused it. And then almost the next day after the Facebook blackout, that's when this sketchy ass Facebook whistleblower comes on the scene, uh, Hauger. I forget her first name right now, but Hauger. And in my personal opinion, she has major spook vibes. And she actually mentions, so basically she's, and I'm gonna get into this in a segment, so I don't want to get too into the weeds right now, but she basically says that Facebook needs to work even closer then they're already working with United States spy agencies to, for, the, for the private uh, counter espionage teams of Facebook that they need more resources and they need to mer- work more closely with the US. This is basically a call to further censor the internet and further monitor internet users in the United States. It's very malicious and she actually mentions the blackout and she, she she kind of like leverages the blackout to push her point about, she starts talking about like all the businesses that were affected by the blackout and how like, you know, when, when these major platforms go down it like has these major huge effects downstream and it just freaks me out and so I would just keep your eye on any news about uh, cyber attacks, cyber security, ransomware attacks, Uh, Just keep your eye on the ball, and um, again, not trying to be alarmist, but just, I love you guys, and so I would just at least do some basic preparations, like having some store of of shelf-stable foods uh, that would last, you know, at least a few months just in case, you know, like rice and beans, just basic shit, make sure you have good plan for access to clean water depending on where you live. Um, like for me, uh, since I live in the desert, I have a life straw. So like as a totally last resort, I could get water from the canals and disinfect it using the life straw. Anyways, um, I just had to share that. So, uh, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Keep your eye on the ball and I'm going to keep you guys posted here on the BMP. And, uh, with that said, now let's get into this episode. Much love, everybody. Take care of yourselves. <laughs>
4: La trahison à cause du fruit du péché chérie, nous souffrons toi et moi et dieu créa l'homme de l'homme venu la femme c'était l'histoire d'adam et elle dans le jardin d'éden c'était le bonheur tu vint la trahison à cause du fruit du péché chérie, nous souffrons toi et moi même si ton pied mon pied oh ma belle il faut être sage Puisque pour l'éternité nous sommes unis tu dois être sage même si ton pied mon pied comme oh ma belle il faut être sage puisque pour l'éternité nous sommes unis tu dois être sage Que tu m'avais donné, que nous avions mangé ensemble, toi et moi Je ne t'en veux pas,
3: oh ma belle, pour cette pomme de l'Eden Que tu
4: m'avais donné, que nous avions mangé ensemble, toi et moi